It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? Doing really well, Jeff. Uh, as, as I repeat many times in the show, I uh, enjoy being on vacation, and I'm on vacation right now with from uh, school. So I'm just uh, you know finding other things to fill my time. Uh, you know, we got together today to work on some important uh, topics that are upcoming. So um, stay tuned for that, I guess. But you know, it's just it's nice to not have to be in the same same pattern and and have habits and you know change it up, do something different. I'm uh, doing some work around the house to clean up the basement because it's uh, it's a mess, and I know that, that there probably will be many presents under the tree, and I gotta gotta make room for them, you know. So it's it's good. How are you? I am good. Uh, it's been a good week. Um, we we had a good afternoon putting on some work. I got an article that got accepted. It should be published by time. It'll probably already be out by time the podcast goes yeah. live. Um, show notes. Yeah, maybe if it's yeah, um, in the in the hill. I'm super excited about that. Um, and then, you know, just had a good weekend with the family. Uh, got to see some friends I haven't seen for a while at a Christmas party. And uh, yeah, just and today we have a it's a it's a Monday special episode, and we have um a great guest on the show today. I am super excited. He, uh, I've written for his publication. It's the Freeman Newsletter, um, and I love it because it's so historically like centric. Um, a lot of founder stuff in there. Um, this weekend they had some great pieces about uh, the Boston Tea Party. Did you read any of those? I did. I really enjoyed it, and like I felt like it was he had been to one of our classes and stuff because he talked about the <laughs> fact that it wasn't the taxes that people were upset about. It was the representation that they didn't have a say in those taxes. Like that's, we don't talk about that enough. And like for him to talk, you know, for someone independently to have the same ideas, um, not that we were, came up with them ourselves, but like to people to recognize that that was key. So I love the article for that reason. Um, I think it's just, it's important to remember, like it wasn't the taxes per se. It was that no one got to say in where those taxes came from and how they were spent. Yeah. Rational people can agree and to disagree, but they have to have the opportunity to speak first. And that's that's the key. All right, we have a very special guest today. I'm very excited to introduce Justin Stapley of Freeman Newsletter. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, great to be here. So we, this is our first time meeting kind of in person. This is as in person <laughs> as you get post COVID. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> our, it is also a benefit because you're in uh, you're in Salt Lake, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm all the way here on the East Coast in uh, Virginia, so we're able to have this meeting via Zoom, and it's a great opportunity to get to know you. Um, we've been tweeting back and forth. You've got this great publication, uh, which you've somehow allowed me to write for uh, or with you, and I'm just really excited about it, and I love the history to it. I love, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just very different than what else is out there. And I think that you have a lot of really talented guys kind of writing for this thing. Every day, I feel like I'm learning something. I was I was talking to somebody today. I was like, when I read, I want to learn something. If I'm not learning yeah. anything, I don't want to read it. And um, every time I'm reading something in your, uh, in your newsletter, I feel like I'm learning something. So what got you inspired to start it? So just to give you a little bit of my background, um... I first went to college in the early 2010s, 
um, studying history down at Southern Utah University in Cedar City. And I absolutely loved my history classes. Uh, it was mostly focused on American history. And my goal at that time was to be a high school history teacher and to coach football. Um, and that was, that's what I was excited about. But then when I got into my education classes, I quickly realized uh, just with things being the way they are, I wasn't going to be able to teach history the way I wanted to teach history. <laughs> and I kind of got just, you know, disappointed, burned out, and uh, uh, kind of just took a break from school. And then uh, my dad, he was a 20-year career uh, law enforcement officer. And so that's what I decided to do at the time. I actually was a deputy sheriff here in Salt Lake County for five years from 2015 to about 2020. And, uh, but then when 2016 happened, um, with, with ev all, all kind of the, the political ground shaking from underneath our feet and trying to figure what's, who believes what, what's going on. I took a step back and kind of, I mean, my background in history, especially with the founding fathers, like I saw some of the stuff that was happening with the nationalism and the populism. And I'm like, this doesn't seem quite right. And so I started really starting to delve into political theory, political philosophy, the great works, um, and trying to understand like, what is it that I believe? Does that make me a conservative? And if it does, what has changed with what's going on in conservatism? And I started blogging, initially it was anonymously, um, and it was kind of like a, a, a side hobby to law enforcement. But then it got to the point where I kind of realized I'm kind of passionate about this. And in 2020, I decided to go back to school. Um, I went to Utah Valley University, uh, just south of me in Utah Valley uh, in Orem, and they had a constitutional studies minor. And I, it was kind of perfect for me, so I delved into it. And I absolutely loved it. I mean, we had a curriculum that was, I mean, it started all the way back with Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. It continued on through all of the thinkers, you know. And then like we had like one one class that was just the uh, Constitutional Convention. And we were reading the letters, especially the ones between Jefferson and Madison back and forth as they were actually, you know, discussing the creation of the Constitution. And I started, you know, having discussions with fellow students and we're like, we've really stumbled across something that is just really excellent here. But it was it was such a small niche program that a lot of people didn't even know about. And we're like, we've got to figure out a way to get some of these ideas uh, out to the broader public. And we also recognize the limitations of academia, given the current environment. And so we kind of landed on this idea, well, maybe let's start some sort of nonprofit, you know, and uh, that's kind of what we decided to do. Um, we first started with the process back in the early part of this year. And then we created a nonprofit organization called the Freeman Foundation. And then the Freeman Newsletter is our first major project. And kind of the goal, what we're going for, is kind of what you touched on. Like we wanted to create something that was accessible, but still informative. We wanted to highlight um, a more intellectually driven uh, brand of conservatism, one that was connected to the deep roots of history one that um, understood like the constitution wasn't created in a vacuum. There was a lot of past thought processes and cultural developments that led to what happened. And then also like, just because things have 
gone in some different directions in our current American situation doesn't mean that there is an efficacy to what the founders kind of discovered through the process of revolution and stuff like that. And so right now we're kind of using it, like you said, to try to showcase um, conservative, typically conservative uh, public intellectuals who aren't really finding a place right now. I mean, there's a lot of really good publications out there. Um, but I found that even though we are, what, eight years into the Trump era now, um, a lot of the national conversation is still driven by um, personalities that were existed before the Trump era. And so I feel like a lot of the conservative argument right now that we're seeing is from people that either like changed who they are in some ways to kind of make, you know, do with the Trump era or have just been so frustrated with how things have gone. They've kind of given into a certain level of cynicism and even nihilism. And it's kind of just like, I mean, I love a lot of these individuals in the various publications, but sometimes you listen to the podcast and it's like, it's, it's almost like we're, we're going through public therapy for the doom and gloom, as opposed to discussing, okay, what do we do next? What do right. we move on from here? Especially for those of us that cling to a more um, classically liberal conservatism based on the constitution, based on all these different things. And so, and, and especially a lot of young people are feeling like, well, where do we go? Because if you aren't, you know, turning point USA, if you aren't on all this different kind of stuff, there's not a whole lot of avenues for, for, you know, getting your thought process out there. And also, I, I'm a huge fan of Yuval Levin's A Time to Build. Um, and I think that the conservative movement has made a lot of mistakes over the years by, well, the the this institution, academia, the media, popular culture, it's been taken over. And so we're leaving, you know, and, and we forget how important a lot of these different institutions are. And we fail to really fight for them or at least try to hold a foothold and I, I feel like specifically for academia, I think it's important to showcase what kind of conservative intellectual um, scholarship is happening out there, because so many conservatives just assume academia is a lost cause. And they don't realize that there's still a lot of really, really good conservative academics from the undergraduates all the way up to the PhD level. There's still good stuff happening out there. And in fact, I argue, because they've had to go through the gauntlet a little bit as part of the academic world, they're honestly some of the sharpest tools in the shed out yeah. there, in my opinion. That I so kind of like a quick, you know, <laughs> take on some of the stuff I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, no. So uh, to your last point there, like, I agree with you 100%. That's kind of what drew me in there is like, I noticed that they're just, you know, as and I'm, I don't come from a classical education background. And, but I kind of found my way into this little niche area of the the conservative intellectual, if you will. And I noticed there wasn't really a lot of places for them to go. And I, I think my analysis of the Republican Party or the conservative movement over the last 20 years or so is people that are just like, they they don't feel like they can win their arguments. So they've mm -hmm. kind of just given up. And I feel like there's a, there's a group of really smart people that could win a lot of arguments you know and they're and you've given them a place to speak and that's mm. awesome <laughs> you know yeah, and that's, that's what goal, that's yeah, what yeah. a conservative like a really strong conservative movement needs is a place mm. where you know the best and the brightest can go and just write what they want to write you know and because mm. they're the they're the talent as opposed to it's like well you got to talk about this because this is going to sell 
you know, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's kind of um, there was an interview just today with George Santos and I can't remember who it was with. And it uh, my friend sent me like a snippet of it. And basically the question was, is like, are you going to go away? And he was like, no, because you you guys can't live without me. You need the content. You invited me here. You know, like <laughs> it's like if they just decided to focus on those young people that you're talking about, as opposed to the the corruption and the problems that we have, focus on the solutions. Yeah. Well, me and uh, you probably I'm sure you guys know Scott Howard. Um, yeah, Scott's been on the podcast. Had... Oh, has he? Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've had lots of conversations about this and kind of where we both kind of came into agreement was that in a lot of ways, we're back to the 1950s again. We're we're back to where we need people like, like Buckley, people like Frank Meyer, who can start kind of building things from the bottom up again. And it might be a slow build and it might be a long-term you know effort, but it's kind of where we need to start because, I mean, people... A lot of people ask, where where did this Trump phenomenon come from? And everybody kind of argues like different things. Um, I feel like, I mean, there's a lot of different places you could start. And there's always been a certain, you know, populist, paleoconservative, nationalist. There's always been some of that in the conservative movement. Um, but I really think a lot of the present crisis starts in 1992 with uh, um, the election of Bill Clinton, with Ross Perot kind of coming in and and things and and right at the same time you had Limbaugh show up very much a little bit later you had Fox News and in a lot of ways for almost 30 years now we've had kind of a a new generation of conservative gatekeepers who showed up on the scene who are more entertainers than they are thinkers Um, and I'm not saying that that Limbaugh wasn't thinker i'm not saying that 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 hannity at times and and glenn beck especially aren't just totally off basis but their core is not as thinkers and philosophers or theorists their core is that they are entertainers a lot of these guys started out in as in the radio business regular djs and then they kind of just stumbled into being political commentators and they don't have much of a background with a deep rooted like you know like like the people who initially started the movement you know um and and i just think that this has led people to have a very different idea of what conservatism actually is over the years because the people that they're following the people that they think are their gatekeepers are more the types of you know oh i am their leader there are my people i must follow them because i'm their leader you know and and we see these different um pundits and and personalities who they can change so dramatically from year to year because once again it's it's more about being there for the entertainment than it is to actually make it a solidly philosophically intellectually driven project um now i'm not saying that intellectuals should just tell everybody else what to believe um and this is another big thing that the newsletter is built on is my observation in studying the founding era was that it was one of the most unique revolutions in the history of the world because it was not a um it was not a populist versus elitist um endeavor it was a very unique situation in where you had the grassroots that were you know being the minutemen showing up to fight um filling the ranks of the patriot movement 
But then you had the the elites, the philosophical intellectual elites of the era, the Jeffersons, the Adams, the Washingtons, they were coming in and taking that spirit of the age and then explaining it in terms that that expanded beyond just populist passions, you know, and they worked together. Um, and for a while, I feel like that's kind of what the conservative movement was. Yeah. And then it's 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 just not that way anymore. Now it's the anti-establishment stuff is almost more of a driver than any kind of deep-rooted principles. And yeah. so th that's kind of what I also want to try to do. And that's why we try to make it like, we're not just, say, an academic journal. We're trying to write about these more intellectually driven topics in a way that's accessible to people. And then we also, like, we have short takes where I'll write a bit more like a, like a hot take, you know, <laughs> expanded tweet stuff. And because you want to have, we understand that the grassroots is important. We understand that not everything has to be, you know, so coldly calculated that you end up being pragmatic and not willing to argue your side of the <laughs> of the point. And so we want to try to do something to bridge that gap, to bring the grassroots and, and and the intellectuals together and start working together. Because I feel like, especially these days, there's so few conservatives that are really conservative. We can't afford these, these you know, problems. We're like, oh, you know, I mean, like a lot of the, the talk show hosts, it's like, you'll, I think the Speaker of the House situation over the last 10 years is so indicative, right? Because you have all these different people that become speakers of the house, whether it's Paul Ryan, uh, whether it's McCarthy, who when they first get the position, they're heralded as like, we finally have a conservative there. And then like almost instantly within just a few months, they become the establishment. And now we have to take them down. And it's like, it becomes very anti-institutional where we need a strong Congress to take on the power of the presidency, but we never get to that point because so we're so busy hunting scalps because we got to take down the speaker. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I agree. Well, one of those, I, when you go back to like Madison and, and Jefferson and then trying to explain their ideas, like I think that's different now and was probably in the same what's different now between that and in the 1950s is that <clears throat> like those people had the credibility with the, their constituents almost like, mm -hmm. you know, James Madison was, was voted in by his County to go and was the people knew him, John Adams, uh, again, like he had a strong presence in the, Braintree brought Boston area. So when he could say something, people listened to him and then he could explain complicated ideas. Um, and then I think the same in the fifties, like, you know, the, there was less entertainment in a certain sense, like the mass media was so different and you, it was more staid and like, there was, you know, right. fewer programs, fewer competition, um, more, uh, <clears throat> I know, <clears throat> sorry, uh, gravitas between the, the anchors and stuff where, you know, you mm -hmm. could kind of sit and think about something, but now it just seems like it's so driven. And you talk about like, the need to put out quick takes or something like that's just because the news cycle goes so fast right and you know if you're not paying attention and checking every 10 minutes or 15 minutes you're missing stuff and then like this big story blows up and you're like wait how do we get from here to there and like what's the the thread and i think like that's a problem where it's really difficult to like sit and think about things um and i, I appreciate you talking about your, like your your foundation with the aristotle and plato and stuff like it was kind of the same for me like reading a little bit of plato reading some Romans, Cicero, Seneca, mm -hmm. um, and kind of uh, the book, one of the books is influential to me was Augustine's Confessions, sort of mm -hmm. kind of actually like bringing apart some of that. So like, those are really important books that I, I think definitely think a lot more people need to read because it's not like the American experiment just sort of like happened. Like, you know, right. uh, we, I think we, like, we tend to think of like experiments as like they were just kind of messing with the lab, but like there was a lot of thought that went into 
putting all the the right ingredients in the place for something to take place. Oh yeah, I, I that was one of the things that amazed me. Um, we had one professor in my constitutional studies course who uh, pointed out just how educated a lot of these founding fathers were. Like we always hear people say, "Oh well." We're, we're so much more advanced. We know so much better now. Like, do we need to be held to these 18th century white men, you know? <laughs> but like he pointed out, like, for example, John Jay, when he applied to college, he had to be able to translate Greek. He had to, he had to actually translate a document in Greek as part of his process of getting into college, <laughs> yeah. you know? And it's like, that's not even something that a lot of people who study classics can do when they get their PhD. Yeah, in our, in our mm -hmm. day and time, you know, well, and I, what's that? So, it, like, I John and I talk about this all the time because uh, if you don't, John's was on the Loudoun County School Board. He actually just is off. Awesome. I got, I got thirteen days until I'm 13, Okay, so he's still on thirteen <laughs> more days. So, and education is like, I mean, one of the that's one of the things I took away from reading, um, like our history, is I noticed how important it seemed to be to all of our founders that we become an educated, civilized society. And I just, I specifically, the story that sticks out is like John Quincy Adams and like his study of like, while he's, while his dad takes him off to Europe during the revolutionary war. And like, he's, he's reading like all the classics and he's like 12 years old. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, we don't think our children can do things, but they can. And like that, I, I literally, I started challenging my kids, my personal kids from that moment and sure enough like my 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 13 year old daughter is reading don quixote right and that's nice. just because like if you set the expectation and then you take your time to like teach them how to do it they can absolutely do it um and yeah. it's like it's and we talked about this um are you familiar with tyler sick um of vital center he was on the podcast uh, a, a little bit yeah mm -hmm. uh, so he was on the pod uh, a week or two ago and we talked about the education system and like we need more of a, like a focused, like classically liberal, like uh, plan for kids to get through. And realistically, like by the time you get to high school, like that should be like your college aid, your 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 college studies. But we just we hyper specialize these kids to do basically jobs. You know, we teach them all these things that they don't really need to know, and we don't teach them any of the foundation stuff none of the plato none of the none of the philosophy no theology nothing like that it's like here's mathematics and science here's how you build a robot and here's how you you know take apart an engine the jobs are going to change over time but that foundation of like classical education that helps you learn anything new going forward as opposed to well i learned how to build a computer and now i don't have that job anymore because another computer builds the computer so now what am i supposed to do <laughs> right yeah because that's something i've observed as well is um over time our school system has uh, evolved from the focus it was when the founders were talking about education which was um educate responsible citizens mm -hmm. it's evolved from that into get kids into college <laughs> you know not that college okay. is a bad thing but like you said, we're losing out on a lot of these other fundamental things. I mean, it's like, what what is the purpose of having free calculus in in uh, your your junior year of high school, and yet you you haven't had like say a rhetoric class to teach you how to engage 
with people in a responsible matter when you're talking about politics. You know, I mean, look at look at Facebook. I mean, it's all face Facebook and Twitter and all social media is is uh, logical fallacies. <laughs> Time and time and time again. And most people don't even have a clue what a logical fallacy is. Like um, I was in a, a local politics chat just the other day because we had some tax increases and there was obviously a lot of debate about that. And I was like, that's the true Scotsman fallacy. And the person's just like, what the heck are you talking about? And I'm like, you're you're saying that because you've lived here longer than me, that your uh, perspective is more important than mine. And that's the true Scotsman fallacy. And that's not a correct way to go about arguing your point. <laughs> and they're just like you're insane. <laughs> you know? um, and you said that's an ad hominem, and yeah, exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly, ad hominems, and uh, I especially love the Martin Bailey fa uh, fallacy, where it's like, well, I didn't say that. What 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 I was trying to say was, <laughs> you know, that's the old uh, and, uh, Bill Belair. What 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 I had meant to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so we just we we send people out from their high school education to be involved in politics, to be engaged in politics, but they don't have the rhetorical skills to do it correctly. They don't have the understanding of the laws to do it in a way that isn't disruptive. I mean, look at all of these uh, um, blocking the traffic protests. Like, oh, we have a right to protest. And it's like, no, people have freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. And as soon as, as soon as what you do conflicts with someone else's rights, you now don't get to do that, <laughs> you know, um, and and just because you have the right to protest doesn't mean you get to do it in whatever way you think is necessary, you know. But but people don't understand that. I remember uh, I I was still in law enforcement when we had the BLM riot in Salt Lake, and we stood there online for hours telling people, at this time, you're going to be ordered to disperse, and if you guys don't leave by this time you will be violating the law, you know? And we kept telling this over and over and over again, you know? And then the time came and we started pushing and people are like, what are you doing? I have I have the right to be here. I have this freedom of speech. And we're just like, we've been telling you that, <laughs> you know, time, you know, for the last three hours trying to warn you, you know? And people just, they don't understand. Um, and, and I think a lot of it, like I said, has to do with the fact that education has, had some considerable mission creep over the last 60, 70 years. And we're not focused on, um, like I said, building responsible citizens, whether they go to college or not, if they're going to vote at 18, we should graduate them at 18, ready with all of the rhetorical skills and knowledge to participate um, responsibly. Yeah. And it, more than just the education, just like what we allow or the education system does with its like I don't know, it's behavioral plan. Like there's very, there's very little discipline. And the teachers, if you talk to teachers and administrators in the school, they'll tell you, I don't really have any power to take care of this kid that's doing something wrong, you know? Okay. Um, and that's a problem too. Cause now like you're talking about, like, we've been telling you for three hours that you can't be here. And the moment that, you know, you reach this time, you're now in violation of the law and these things will happen. And they go, they they believe that they're entitled to it. They don't because in yeah. school it didn't matter. Like we, mm -hmm. they got in trouble. They did whatever, and they were able to come back tomorrow. No, oh, you know, yeah. like my daughter had a thing earlier where she found out there was a calm down teacher, so she started misbehaving in class so she could go to the calm down teacher to get out of class. Meanwhile, they didn't notify the parent 
me at all. And it's like, well, I would just tell her not to go, you know, because she knows better than what she's doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it reminds me of another uh, experience I had in law enforcement. Um, I used to have to do shifts at what was called a juvenile receiving center. It was kind of like a, it was a mixture between like a, like a, a, a homeless shelter for youth and a place for um, foster care kids to wait placement. And then also like a, uh, for people whose families were in crisis, the kids could come with, you know, and then like a low level juvie. It was just kind of kids, all sorts of different kinds of kids got sent here. And we had one kid who had stolen a car, grand theft auto, but because they were 17 years old. And um, because in Utah, we kind of shifted how like the, 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 the crimes that get you into actual juvie, because it wasn't a crime against a person, he got sent to us as opposed to anywhere else. And then he turned 18 while he was with us, went and stole a car again, ended mm. up in prison, <laughs> uh. you know, and he's like in shock, like, well, what happened? You know, it's like, well, we one like one day it's a slap on the wrist. The next day it's a felony that gets you in prison <laughs> because and so to me, like he's definitely responsible for his own actions. But at the same time, the system failed to teach him the consequences of his actions and the reason why it was that way is because we're so concerned like well if we institutionalize the kids if we send them to prison you know juvenile detention those kind of things then we're going to set them on you know the pathway of crime for their whole life you know and so like a lot of the ideas come from a good place but we just don't realize we're not teaching kids the consequences that you know once they're adults are gonna <laughs> be pretty serious and the, well, the thing it, is, the problem of uh, not helping people to get out of prison, but so they, it's the wrong solution. And so you don't, you don't charge them or something when in reality, you just need to provide more support to help someone get back into society so that yeah. they can, they can leave prison and, uh, you know, uh, paying their penalty as society has said, and then helping them do something uh, meaningful with their lives so that they don't fall back into that same cycle. Like, I think like, it's just, you know, recognizing there's a problem, but then having the wrong solution and not having the humility to kind of see that it's not a good solution and then it's not helping people. And then we're, you're, that's the same kind of cycle. You're just stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Cause well, sometimes I take a little bit of a hard view. I feel like um, in order to establish norms and mores in a society, examples have to be made. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a, it's a difficult thing to consider because we like thinking of each individual person, but like if there, if there aren't those consequences there that are um, uh, general consistent and unmoving, in at least certain, uh, you know, contexts, then those norms and mores don't get established. It, it yeah. ends up being the other way. The norms and mores are, oh, there are no consequences, and so more, and so people are like, well, I can do this. You know, you're yeah. going to say something, Jeff? Yeah. So I, I, I agree. There, there definitely has to be like uh, strong consequences, but consequences without love is just it doesn't work either. You know, and I think that's a lot of the problem that happens. And you, you can trace that back through our history, right? As far as like, look at the Civil War and then Reconstruction and kind of our failure as a nation to really give the, all of these people who were enslaved, who are now free, like the proper opportunity to, to rebuild their families. Because anybody that mm -hmm. studied, you know, slavery in the antebellum period, you realize how awful it was for the individuals being ripped away from the ones that they loved, sold to different places. And basically, now that you're free, you you have nobody. You're just an individual. And that would be hard. You know, like I I couldn't imagine just 
one day, like 16 or whatever, just like being out on my own with no parents, no, no grandparents, no anybody to, to have. And we, we tried to do things, but over and over, we've also impeded that. And I think that kind of, that's where we're at. And we got to a point in the sixties where we kind of turned things the other direction where we're trying to like, you know, fix those old problems, but we're not, fi- we're not going back to the right spot. And we were right. removing consequences as opposed to instilling love. And I think that's a big problem. You know, we need, we got to keep the consequences. We just need to influx more love or in my opinion, more opportunity into the system. Because at the end of the day, crime a lot of times happens when people feel like they have no other choice. And so if we create a, the America that our founders envisioned and has been for 200 plus years is an America of opportunity, you're going to lower the amount of people that want to go into crime um, or feel like they have to go into crime, you know? Well, I think a huge part of it is having a focus in human dignity. I think uh, starting with even the early progressive movement, we got to this point where people started looking at the at the American dream as a checklist. Like, oh, you know, check this box, check this box, check this box, and now you're living the American dream. And then we're like, okay, now who doesn't have those boxes checked off? And then let's create this uh, program and that program and this institution and, and this welfare approach to try to help check those boxes. Um, and and we we got so into the minutia of all this kind of stuff, we forgot about the human dignity part of the equation. And the American dream is something that each American gets to define for themselves. Yeah. And if you don't if you don't create more of a sphere of liberty where people are free to make those choices, to find out what their American dream looks like, then you're saying you don't you don't have that dignity, you know, and and it creates this problem where um, people when people get robbed of that dignity long enough, it doesn't matter how much they're given, they're not happy because they didn't build it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't choose it for themselves. And then, and then you end up creating almost a generational acculturation of dependency to where people are told over and over and over again, there is no American dream. The American dream is closed to you. This is the best you can have. And then what does that create? That creates, you know, tension, that creates resentment. And then, and then it ends up feeding people on the other side. You know, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, obviously, uh, um, there's been a lot of debate lately about, um, picking and choosing who to help out, who not to help out for uh, college scholarships and things like that. Um, and people forget that if you if you help a poor black student get a college education for free because he's black, but you don't help a poor white student because he's white, you end up growing that resentment in the white student. And yeah. I, I feel like a lot of our efforts to address the uh, consequ- the, the, the generational consequences of racism has started refueling racism in certain ways. Because I, I served my um, Latter-day Saint mission uh, back in 2006 in Ohio. And I had areas where I was in downtown Cleveland extremely you know african-american majority in those areas 
Um, and then I served in other areas that was in the old Rust Belt, Rust Belt towns where the factories were gone and everybody was living on welfare there, even though you know, it was majority white and, and in the trailer parks. And I saw the same problems in both places where um, people's down on their luck, whatever happened, or it's generational, but they they became in a lot of ways wards of the state because they're relying on the state. There's no jobs, you know, and the resentment is is there in both those those places. And so, if you address only one problem but not the other, it just creates this big old brew of problems, you know. And that's where like. <laughs> Um, I love the book Hillbilly Elegy. It's too bad that the author went the route that he has because I feel like that book made so many excellent points about explaining the Trump phenomenon. And and now that book's kind of being not even paying attention to anymore because like, oh, it's like, you know, that guy kind of went this way. <laughs> have, have you um have you ever watched the show Rick and Morty? Uh I briefly, not a whole lot, but briefly. So they have this great episode where the dinosaurs return to Earth, and they find mm. out the dinosaurs had no idea that an asteroid hit the Earth. They had left before mm. the asteroid actually hit, and they find out that the asteroid is this other – like the, the dinosaurs get there, and they're basically like godlike figures. They're able to do anything and solve any problems. The uh, people absolutely love them, but then they find out that there's a, an asteroid coming to strike the Earth. And it turns out that that asteroid is another living object, and its sole purpose in the world is to attack the good thing. It's the complete opposite, and it's it's that resentment that you were talking about. It's like if you do this over here, you're going to create resentment over here. Every and John and I talked about this a lot. Every action has a reaction, always. Mm -hmm. And so if you're trying when you're trying to solve racism by creating different racism. You know, you're not actually solving anything. You're just moving the problem around. And um, that was kind of, we talked about it on the show last week or the week before. It was kind of my argument at post-Civil War and Reconstruction with the way that the North handled the South. It's like, mm -hmm. yes, you were probably a little bit over punished them a, a little bit too much and didn't take into account that the free people that you just freed, they live there. And so you're hurting them as well. And, right. you know, as opposed to like working together to like bring each other up and, and walk each other forward, it's that it's that way we solve problems is just doing the opposite thing or going back the opposite uh, way. So mm -hmm. I'm reminded oh, yeah. of uh, reading something about like the golden rule, like uh, treat others as you want others to treat you and someone trying to make the point that that's a bad rule, because if, you know, if, if I want, if, you know, if someone treated me well, was giving me ice cream. Um, and then this other person doesn't want ice cream, but I give him ice cream. Like I'm, I'm, you know, not treating him appropriately because he doesn't want that. But like, that's such a bad reading of it. It's, it's not just giving everyone the same thing. It's trying to understand their, their situation and then tailoring something to them. And like, that's the true treating others, you know, like you want someone to understand your situation and help you out rather than just like give everyone ice cream, even if they don't like ice cream, because that's what you like. Like, like it's, I think what you're, you're, that's what, kind of what you're getting at. Like, you just can't put everyone in the same bucket. And like, I love how you said like the American dream has become a checklist and that's so true. It's like, oh, you got to get a house and you got to have a job and then you got to have kids and you got to have a white picket fence. But like, it's, that's not this, you know, not everyone fits in that certain situation. And it's so much of like, we have this, this mythology what the American dream is, but like, really it's just about having the opportunity to, to, to be free and to sort of like 
pursue your vocation and and be a good person like that's that's the american dream in a nutshell but we've, we've materialized it and, um so I, I i really like how you you frame that you know one of the best stories um about this true idea of the american dream is uh some of these quotes from Thomas Edison where like people ask him like, well, were you really disappointed when you failed 90 something times to make the light bulb? He's like, no, I found that many ways not to make the light bulb, <laughs> you know, or like when um, his, there's a story that his laboratory went up in a fire and instead of being despondent, he ran and got his kids and said, get out of here. You're not going to see a fire like this ever again, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's part like the American dream isn't just about any type of definition of success. It's the freedom to fail. Because we learn from failure, we grow from failure, and um, that's what allows the innovation that really the, the success of the country is is built on. I, I keep thinking right now about, like, there are so many people that are just so um, convinced that the answer to uh, climate change is all these alternative energy sources. And then it's just subsidy, subsidy, government action here, all this stuff. We're going to profit this company. And I'm sitting there going what if the solution is an innovation that makes our traditional energy sources amazingly efficient? <laughs> you know, I mean that, 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 but, but because we're, we're drowning the innovation that could, we could be holding back a solution we could have had 20 years ago. <laughs> so it's funny that you bring that up. I went to a Christmas party and I ran into somebody who happens to be an expert in energy and mm. you know what they told me? They told me I have this theory about um, why the earth is so hot because the city, we keep on building these really large concrete cities and they're basically like heat points. It's like putting a um, a blowtorch on a body, a large body of water. If you put one blowtorch, it's not going to make a difference. If you put a thousand, you might raise the temperature a couple of degrees, right? So that's kind of what the, the, the cities are doing. He told me I was wrong, but he also told me that he, that, that theory is actually kind of what solar panels do because they actually mm. produce more heat than energy they generate. So they're actually warming the 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 thing. And he said I asked him I said what's the number one thing that we can do to solve our energy crisis? And he goes, "We don't have an energy crisis. We have an efficiency crisis." Mm. And uh, <laughs> he didn't say it exactly that, but that's what I took away from right, it. Right. And and I'm like, "This this this guy probably knows a lot more than me. I, I started to like take notes. So I'm like, all right, a lot of things I didn't know about here, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because that's where we need the innovation. We need the innovation right. and like actually like dissecting the problem. And, and I love how you said this, having the freedom to fail. Right. And just like try. That's the one thing, you know, the study in the progressive era that I absolutely or the pre-progressive era, the Gilded Age, uh, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, you know, um, all the robber barons and just like this tenacity to fall on their faces and keep going and just build, build, build um, and innovate. And we've gotten away from that so much. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's like, I mean, <laughs> um, a good a good example of problems the other way is like, you know, the housing crisis that we had in the late 2000s. I mean, a lot of that gets pinned on to onto Bush. But if you know the history of everything that happened is a lot of that came about because of various um, strategies under the Clinton era to give people houses. Because once again, the American dream is a checkbox. 
people they're not living the american dream if they don't have a house you know and so how do we get how do we get people to be able to afford mortgages to to get mortgages so that they can get a house and then after about 10 years of that too many people had houses that they couldn't afford and we created a bubble and that bubble burst you know and that's and that's the hard part about all this really over the top government intervention is i mean if you, if you've read anything from hayek or soul you know that their argument is people are not smart enough no matter no matter how much knowledge you have you do not have the wisdom to know how every different um, choice is going to affect everything <laughs> um and it's I, I I have something I call a political chaos that I like to talk about because it, it lets me teach people this principle in terms of Jurassic Park, where um, you think you can control everything, but you can't, you know, and like he talks about life finds a way. I say freedom finds a way. Freedom's going to burst free. People want to have those choices. They want to have control of their own destiny. And the more and more you try to control it, the more and more you set yourself up for a complete collapse of everything you're building. And it's part of what invites chaos. Um, this is actually a big part of uh, the book I've been trying to work on. <laughs> I've been super busy getting the newsletter going that it's been very, very little by little. But I want to write essentially a philosophical sequel to Hayek's um, The Road to Serfdom called The Road to Chaos, where I talk about some of this stuff and I talk about radicalism and different things um, and just explain that the way that human nature is set up we are programmed to expect a certain level of freedom. It's just part of our DNA. We want to feel like we're in control of our own destiny. Um, and when people don't get that, when people feel like they don't have control, that is the seed of revolt. That is the seed of chaos. Um, and I think it's a big part of, I mean, I think January 6th, for example, is a huge example of that where people grew convinced whether through a com probably through a combination of both legitimate and very illegitimate ideas in their head they became convinced that i the control i had over my country was taken from me and once people are convinced of that um the things they're capable of is is astonishing you know and the same kind of thing with the civil war whether it was true or not once once lincoln was elected without a single Southern state voting for them, that was the seed of the rebellion, is that we no longer have control. And, and that's part that, that's what actually fueled it. And a lot of times, the ideas that people use to legitimize these revolts or, or um, rebellions, those kind of come afterwards. It's almost post hoc. The root is we have no control. So now how do we justify what we want to do because we have no control? Yeah, I I want to get we're we're getting kind of towards our end here. I have to okay. go to bed at some point, but I have no some a few like we did this with brands where it was like kind of like fast kind of like I'm just curious what you think. Um, okay. And I I may have emailed you about this one. There's no right answers, but there's a lot of wrong answers. So be careful. Yeah, be careful. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so who's who's one person you've met on your journey so far? that you're like, man, I really glad I met that person. I really admire what they're doing. Um, a lot of it's just the professors that I had at Utah Valley University. Um, professor Rick Griffin, uh, Professor Andrew Bibby, um, various other professors there who just are 
they just they're focused so much in trying to build a niche despite everything like they've been able to create a very small heterodox niche at utah valley university and they've done it in a way that it's not like it's not a conservative project per se um they're, they're not banging people on the head with only one view but they've been able to kind of step outside of the orthodoxy and uh this created something where you can go and you can really engage in that more Straussian experience. So I'd, I'd say those professors who've done really well at Utah Valley University. All right. Do you think that our, our that we need more constitutional amendments? I think some could definitely be helpful. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know uh, you and I have exchanged a few um, emails about that. I don't know if you had a chance to read over that uh, um, document I sent you, but you can tell I've put a lot of thought into this idea. Um, uh, however, I come from a very unique perspective in that if there are amendments that we want to introduce, I want to introduce amendments that tweak the system so that we can reassert and renew what kind of that founding idea was about what the Constitution should look like. Um, for example, one one I'll just bring up is um, I know that, that Jeff, you especially, I, I don't know if you are, John, as well, but you, know, you guys are really uh, interested in expanding the House. Um, I am almost more interested in expanding the Senate. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, the states, because, because of making the senators popularly elected, the states have essentially lost their voice in the federal government. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big reasons, in my opinion, why gerrymandering has become such a thing. Because if you think about it, that is the only way that state legislatures can uh, do anything to move the ball in any direction when it comes to the federal government. That is essentially their sole power now when it comes to influencing the federal government. Um, now, I'm I'm realistic. I understand that, that the cat's kind of out of the bag when it comes to popularly electing senators. Um, if you try to pass an amendment that takes that away and gives it back to the legislatures, obviously the people are going to, they're not going to go for that. <laughs> See, and I so, disagree with you. I think they would. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I think we should propose. So one of mine would be expanding the House, but in that bill, it would be, or in a different bill, I'm not sure yet, but we need to give states power back. Like mm -hmm. we have to give them power. And I actually, how many people would you expand it to? Like, as far as like you said, expand the Senate. I actually think that we need an additional Senator as well, just for the, just the massive amount of workload for the massive amount mm -hmm. of people that are on the planet and compared to the amount of people that were on the planet when we, you know, founded mm -hmm. our, our government, how many um, mm -hmm. members would you give? So um, preferentially, I would double it. I would go to 200, but I'd settle for 150. And my kind of plan, um, I guess you could say it's a compromise in case uh, your idea doesn't work. Um, my idea is to keep the two current senators who are elected by the people, elected by the people, and then introduce additional senators, whether one or two, who are then selected by the legislature, so that you can reintroduce the state's voice without making the people feel like they've lost their voice. See, I, I feel like ideas. if you if you expand the House and you actually give people a voice, then they mm -hmm. won't need the senator's voice. And the senators can go back to doing the state's job, you know, representing the states, because that's the biggest problem we have is we have these bodies that have these very distinct like responsibilities and none of them function in the responsibilities that they are like the house is kind of like right. 
it, you know, corporations have a lot of say over that because of the elections. The Senate, it's like the people as opposed to the state. And then the executive who just kind of does everything. It's like a king. And depending on if <laughs> right. depending yeah. on if the king is on your side or the other guy's side, you feel like he's a tyrant, you know, or, or he's a hero or a savior, you know. And so that's, you know. It's a big reason well, why we're all the, doing the people this. People of the state that elect. I mean, I I am also sympathetic to reintroducing the legislature to pick the senators, but you'd have to think like that that same people that pick the legislature is picking the senator in a certain. So it's it's not like the senator is completely oblivious to what's going on in the state. And I think the best example of that was Manchin uh, was last year, two years ago, where he basically killed the Build Back Better plan uh, because it was going to be so detrimental to West Virginia. So he bucked party leadership. He supported what he thought was important for West Virginia. So I wouldn't say it's, it's, we've lost it all. Like, I think there, there's oh, still no, that. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I mean, um, we, we, we can always be thankful that there are virtuous men in government, but we can never guarantee that they're going to be virtuous. And that's why Madison tried to create a series of uh, incentive. Like what are, what are the incentives that are involved within the system of government to make sure that if you have non-virtuous people in government, they are still incentivized to do things a certain way. And, th and that's why I really like the idea of trying to reintroduce more state level involvement within the selection of senators, because um, you can have people like Joe Manchin who are virtuous and, and go about actually representing their states, or you could have people like Josh Hawley or <laughs> various other senators that um, they, are, they are representing a faction far more than they're representing the actual government of their state or the people of their states, you know, and in a lot of ways, the Senate has not become the, it, it's no longer the deliberative body mm. that it used to be. Mm. And, and that's one of the things that I'm interested in trying, how do we find ways to reintroduce the deliberative processes of government? Because right now, like you said, um, depending on which side of the coin you are, you either view the president as an enlightened despot or as an unenlightened despot. <laughs> and um, everybody expects Congress to essentially either do what the president wants them to do or to stand in the way of what the president wants them to do. And the president has become the focal point of, of almost all of our politics. Um, I think you would fix the Senate if you got rid of the silent filibuster. Like if you went back to having to actually defend your, what you were going to say, um, you know, not that you have to speak all the time because they can call close the session and stuff, but I think that would do a lot to bring back debate because it's just so easy now. You just you put you file a little piece of paper and then you get to sit on it and you get to be a hero, but you don't actually do anything other than like obstruct things. And then you're not actually convincing people about this. And so then again, like you're you've stolen power from people and then they get upset. And like you saw with the Tommy Tuberville um sort of blocking all the military appointments. So I'm very sympathetic to the pro-life issue and what he's trying to do to like to say like we need to have a debate about this and for the defense department but he's not having a debate about it he's just sort of right. uh, you know sitting on it and then he sits on it for too long and then people revolt against him and then he, he loses his, his credibility and he loses the whole argument about that so in the end he actually did a disservice to this because then it just seems like it's one crotchety guy rather than 50 or 60 people that are pro-life and can say like yeah we should the department of defense should not be funding abortions and like I, I think like I would I would say like that would probably fix more of the Senate than than some but you know there's a lot of different ideas and I think they're all oh, yeah. in service of making it better. Well, and of course, before we can even get to a point where we can pass any kind of constitutional amendment, you got to have enough people in there to <laughs> consider it. And that's why I really like uh, it's it's an idea that's been tossed about by various people is 
we essentially <clears throat> need a um, a federalist society like organization who focuses on reviving the uh, legislative branch um, because we, we need to get people who are even convinced that this kind of stuff is even possible or even needs to be looked at. You know, how do we, because Congress is supposed to be the first among equals when it comes to the feder, federalist uh, system, um, not the, not the president. I mean, I, I despise the, um, uh, the annual address, you know, the state of the union address, because it's just, I can just see so many of the founders just feel like what, what a, an obsequious display of, of, of non-Republican ideals and principles to have the president come to the Congress, give them a list of demands. Congress gets up and claps every five minutes. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's disgusting. <laughs> it is. I, you know, and I never really thought that until I started reading history and I got to Thomas Jefferson and, and I started to like, and I, I went, I watched the state of the union and I go, wow, this is not what I think. I think they thought it was supposed to be. It's just that whole idea of like, he's standing up at a podium. He's looking down at the people. Remember those pe those representatives, they're us. That's our voice. Mm -hmm. He's looking down at us and he's telling in a lot of circumstances, depending on what party you are, he's dictating to you what he's going mm -hmm. to do and you're expected to clap, you know, and yep. it's, it, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. <laughs> Yeah, that's why. I mean, I mean, Washington did do an actual address, but it was an actual. It was more like a, uh, you know, here's how things are going. Here's what's been going on. It was more of an actual report. Um, but I think Jefferson wisely was like, "I'm going to send you guys a letter," <laughs> and yeah. then that's the way it was for a long time. I trying to think was was it was it Roosevelt? Theodore Roosevelt was was he the first to go to back to an actual address? I can't remember if it was him or if it was Wilson off the top of my head. Um, but like for a long time, it was just a letter that was sent every year. <laughs> it sounds like something Teddy would do, but yeah. if Teddy didn't do it, it's definitely something Wilson would have done. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know Wilson was doing it. I just don't remember if he started it or if or if it was uh, good old good old Teddy. I, yeah. If there's any figure in in American political history that I just like, there's things about him I love and things about him I do not like at all. Is Theodore Roosevelt? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So what do you uh, I mean, I kind of feel that way about him. Overall, I think I like him more than I don't like. I think he's like, you know, you got to judge everybody in the sphere that they lived in, you know, yeah. and try not to apply too much of our modern day. But I feel like he was he was pretty solid. What do you not what what is something that you're hesitant on him for? Well, I feel like he is is probably most responsible for creating the modern presidency. And for like making it a bit more the focal point of of American politics, and and I also don't like his um, empire building. I feel like uh, America up until that point, um, I mean, there was the Manifest Destiny part, but that was that, that that's a bit more of a complicated situation. He was the first president who said, you know, we're going we're going to defeat the Spanish and then keep the Philippines as an imperial you know, providence and, and different things like that. And he, he really thought like, I want to build an empire so that we can be equivalent to the other empires, which I just don't much care for that. And then like, I mean, he, there was, like, he was very martially oriented with his views. Like he was one of those guys that was like, 
war is good because it builds strong men and <laughs> different things like that. I'm just like, eh. <laughs> at the yeah. same time, he, he kind of like was a man, like he'd say things, but they hold up to it. I mean, he's a guy that got shot and finished his speech before he went to the hospital, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and then like, he was the, he was the undersecretary of the Navy. And then when the war started that he wanted to start, he left and joined the war. I mean, you don't see guys that do stuff like that anymore, you know? So, <laughs> so and, and, and so that's part of the thing I actually, I, I like about Teddy is I may disagree with his position specifically on the war. Right. But I respect the fact that he supported it so much. He went and actually fought it, you know, because mm -hmm. Like there's no like he really believes in it. He's putting his life on the line, you know. Right. Um, and so like I kind of respect that with him. I agree. I he did the modern day presidency is kind of born from him, but I don't think that he really created that like the power there. I think he just moved the power into the new age, and he just showed people how you could use it with this bigger media that we had. Even though it wasn't television yet, but um, you know, the newspapers had more reach um, and he his voice had more reach um, and he knew how to use that because you fast forward to FDR and like, you know, again, he, he brings that into a whole new age of like communication and reaching to people. But I think every president does that in their own way to expand their power and to grow. Oh, yeah. It's just the technology that changes along the way. Some do it better than others or some wield the power better and i think that's where teddy sets himself apart is he was such an eloquent speaker he was able to wield that power more effectively than other presidents right and and the thing the thing that really kind of like like in the broad spectrum of things that frustrates me sometimes about about him is i feel like he's he's where the seed got planted of this idea among a lot of americans that the president is more representative of the people than congress because everybody is voting for him. Mm. And to me, that is a total upside down flip from, from all the theories that went into building the American Republic because he is an executor of the laws and Congress is more representative because we each are represented by someone who represents us more directly. We are more directly connected to our members of Congress. Therefore, the results of the deliberation out of Congress are supposed to be more representative than a single man who may or may not actually represent the sentiments of the people. And, and that's kind of where, like, in my broad expanse, I get frustrated with kind of, because that's where it kind of starts with his use of the bully pulpit and, and I'm going to cajole Congress to do the things I want them to do. And then it's kind of gone on until now where, like, you know, Congress plays second fiddle to the president in most people's minds, you know, yeah. very much so. I, so I agree with all of that. And I think that you're right. But I put a lot of the blame on Congress. Like mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Congress moved itself second fiddle, you know, and mm -hmm. you're that that is the biggest problem that we face today with everyday citizens is the fact that everyday citizens look at the president and they go, I need to support this guy or that guy because he's going to solve my problems. And I go, that guy's not going to think about you. You need to go yeah. focus on your congressional rep. <laughs> like you need to give all the attention that you're giving to Trump, Biden, whoever it is. Give it to your congressional everybody running for office at your at your uh, federal congressional district because that is 
that's your customer service representative. Like if you're going to go to the store and you, you bought this product and this product doesn't work and you're really frustrated and you go into the store, you're not going to talk to the owner of the store or the, or the CEO, you're going to talk to a representative and that's going to be your congressional representative. And you want that person to have enough power to solve your problem where he doesn't have to wait to talk to the CEO. And mm -hmm. we don't, we don't do that. We just like, yeah. oh, I'm gonna yell at the, I'm gonna yell at the boss. I'm gonna yell at the guy at the top. He'll never hear me because he's on his podium talking down to me. And we're just gonna be in this perpetual cycle where we never get anywhere. Right. And and I mean <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I always keep telling people, like, register for a party, vote in the primaries. Like whichever party it is, you know, because that's a, a vote in the primary is so much more powerful than a vote in a general election. Like it really is. Mm -hmm. And so many people have taken themselves completely out of the equation. And it's like, well, you say you get frustrated with the people that the parties keep giving you, but then you don't participate in that selection process. And, and you've probably seen me say this millions of times on Twitter and various writings, but like, we got to stop thinking of our parties as country clubs that we just need to like, I don't like the atmosphere in the clubhouse, so I'm gone. You know, it's like, no, these are actual institutions. They are part of the government processes. And you need to think of them more in terms of Congress or the Supreme Court or the presidency. Just because the people who currently have power you don't like doesn't mean you stop fighting for control or fighting to get your, your thought processes involved because they wield real power. And you don't want to abandon those people to wield that power without your voice at the table, however uncomfortable it might be to be involved in some of these things. Um, these, these are the pipelines through which people are chosen for high office in our country, and that's just the reality. And, and the system maybe wasn't designed with a dual party system in mind, but the realities of the system logically lead to that developing. And the only way to not have a dual party system is to dramatically change the system. And the only way for one of our present parties to go away is if they actually shatter in two or, or you know, kind of like what happened with the Whig Party and then developing the Republican Party. You've got to have people within the party actually leave and create yeah. something new. Um, you're not going to make a new party just kind of build up from nothing. I mean, the 50-year history of the Libertarian Party kind of teaches us what happens with most third-party efforts. <laughs> unfortunately. Well, and you, and I've been involved in them. So, but, <laughs> and you said, um, you know, you have so much more power as a citizen voting in a primary versus a general election. And just like, for example, cause John and I talk about this all the time. We tell people like, if you're not voting in the primary, please don't go vote in the general, like mm. don't use that vote. Like the most powerful thing you can do if you skip your primary is to use negative power and not vote. But yeah, if yep. you're in, and so, but in the primary election in District 10, when we ran, I think, John, it was what, 13,000 votes for the primary? We were looking at this. Yeah, this, it was the guy who won had 7,000 votes. And that's when he got to 50%. So it's about 13,000, maybe 14,000. And that's for the congressional district that represents 770,000 people. So 13,000 yep. people decided one of the candidates. And then in that general election, there was 400,000 people plus voted, right? So one in 13,000 or one in 400,000, right? Where is your, Where do you have more power there as a citizen exactly. to actually like have your voice heard? And more than that, like if you are participating in the primary process, you're going to have a chance to shake your candidate 
firsthand mm -hmm. to speak with them and ask them direct questions without having the filter. You know, there's so much, especially on the Republican side, there's so much distrust of the media, the elite media. They're lying to us all the time. And it's like, if you got involved in the primary process and you went to talk to people directly, you don't have to have the media filter the information for you. You can get it straight from the horse's mouth. You know, it's, 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 you know, it is what people need to focus on. I'm glad that you said that. Make John and I, I look mean, like, like we're know what we're doing on this podcast. <laughs> well, and, and the funny thing is, unless you're like in a state like mine or like Iowa that has uh, some sort of caucus aspect, like all we're talking about is registering on a piece of paper and then voting on the day of the election. Like that is the sum total of your involvement in the party necessary to vote in the primary. Mm -hmm. A lot of people act like you're just you're just covered in dirt by by involving yourself in one of the political parties and well the people are this way and the people are that way and it's like no like you can i mean the to me the beauty of political parties is you can be involved to the extent you are you are comfortable with you could be a precinct cat chair you could try to become in, involved in the state uh leadership apparatus or like i said you can just sign that you're registered in this party and vote on that day, you know, or if, if you have like a lot of states now have uh, early voting and, and vote by mail, it's literally like you get an envelope in the mail, you vote for it and you send it away. And that's the total amount of your actual participation in the party, you know, so like it, it does, it's not like you have to go and be involved with people that just really make your skin crawl just to be involved in the party to that extent. <laughs> that's what we need. We need more people yep. involved in the primary process. We need more of the people that have left because they felt like they didn't have a place to debate their ideas, to be involved right. in the process. And they just need to be patient. You know, I think a lot of it is they show up and you say like, well, they're not going to cover you in dirt. And I actually disagree with you there because they are absolutely going to cover you in dirt. They're going to spam your email. They're going to spam your text message thread. They're going to say nasty things about the people that live in your community who are running for office, who you've known for a really long period of time and you know isn't true. And then you just have to stay diligent and kind of tune them out and then make your make your decision because right. that's your responsibility as a citizen. Like if you're going to sit it, sit back and you're going to go, Things aren't going well, and I don't like this person, that person, or this person. And it goes, well, what are you doing to make any change? You know, where is your involvement? And once you decide to get involved, you've got to get involved in the right spot, and then you've got to be prepared to just be patient. You know, they are, they're going to sling mud. They're going to cover you in dirt, but bring a rain jacket and you know, stay persistent. You know, the, the yeah. storm will pass, and... All of the people throwing dirt will move on their way, and it'll be a whole bunch of really great people who, like you mentioned before, have gone through the ringer, so they're a little bit more hardened than they would have been otherwise, and you're going to get right. something really special. You know, a lot of people look at where we're at in the world, and they're pessimistic because they feel like it's falling apart. I feel like we're on the brink of something special because we're at yeah. that, that you like you mentioned earlier, just people have had barriers they've had to work harder and that's made them better at their jobs and we're going to see the fruits of that labor i say in the next you know over the next five to ten years it'll be difficult but we'll still yeah. see it i hard i wholeheartedly agree in fact one of the big pushes behind the freeman newsletter behind the freeman foundation is um, i and others that have worked with me to get this going we really believe that 
there is going to be a new American enlightenment around the corner. There's going to be a new American great awakening. And all we have to do is start planting those seeds because it society is very, it, it has ebbs and flows just like markets do. You know, mm-hmm. if, if, if the price of something goes super high and then we build too much, you know, stuff for it, then the prices sink all the way down low again. And this thing, say if the same things happen in society, if you, if we start just getting swamped by populism, nationalism, over the top progressivism, all these things, yeah, it may feel like we're at this peak and it feels like things are going to go bad. This is unsustainable. But the reality is it's going to sink back down low and people are going to get disenchanted with this stuff. And what, what we need to do is we need to say, how can we start building the seeds to pick that up when people are looking for a new um, way to go? You know, and if we have um, all these different efforts we're trying to do, you know, we have some publications, we have all these different people and say, you know what, that didn't work. But guess what? Here's here's where we can go now, you know, and and that's where we need to go. And if we can do that right, like you said, things can turn around. It can be absolutely amazing. You know, people these days forget because we don't know history. But in the wake of Vietnam, during the Jimmy Carter presidency, this country was at a very, very low place. Like we talk and we talk about now about Reagan talking about mourning in America. And it just, it just seems like a neat slogan. Right. But if you understand the way people actually felt in that time period, um, he was trying to give people hope at a time that a lot of people had lost hope. I mean, they'd gone through the sixties and the seventies, people were getting assassinated. We had, you know, actual bombings coming from political terrorist groups inside the country and all these different kind of things. Um, like I said, the Vietnam era just decimated people's faith and government, faith in our role of the world. Um, Jimmy Carter's presidency was not good for the economy. Like people were in a very, very low place. I would argue it was worse than now. People maybe feel worse right now, but it was worse back then than it is now. And in a lot of ways, Reagan turned things around and not just Reagan himself, but the movement that was prepared to to make a case to people. And then when someone like Reagan showed up to kind of give him some of that momentum and and bring people a message of hope saying, you know, America does have better days in its future. And I think that America still does. It's just getting through another one of our difficult times. Absolutely. I agree. We're uh, we're running out of time, though, Justin. Um, All right. No problem. This has been (laughs) a fantastic conversation i could probably go for uh hours um i want to show you i want to show you something real quick since you mentioned it so this is can you see that oh yep there you go yeah see that's and it's funny that your (laughs) class studied that and i'm like that's Mm -hmm. what i do (laughs) yep i love it and i try really hard to uh i don't know if you've noticed within the right uh the work in the freeman newsletter I maybe go a bit over the top because I try to give people links to original works. Mm-hmm. I want, you know, I, I link to letters like people, people like in a lot of publications, people will do a quote from a founder and everybody's heard that quote. So they'd like, oh, we don't need to cite that because everybody knows that he said that. But for me, it's like, I want people to know where that was right. and what the context is of it and maybe to read more of it, you know. So I really try to go over the top with those hyperlinks because I want people to expand their own personal 
um, knowledge base beyond even just what we're writing about. It's like, don't believe us. Go and read the actual letters. Read what the founders actually said and reach your own conclusions. I think you'll find that we're trying to be spot on to what they're saying, but maybe you feel a different way. That's fine. Then we can engage in that debate and dialectic. Absolutely. I love it. I absolutely love it. You know, yeah, I mean, I've done that. I The letters, I just, I don't know. It's like, it's like a story, man. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, and it's a great story. You know, like I read fiction, science fiction. I do a, what the book podcast. We've read Ender's game and Ender's shadow. Mm -hmm. And I love those stories. And they're just, they're layered stories of different characters of the same events. And that's how I feel like reading the found, like reading our founding is because you read mm -hmm. Madison's story and Washington's story and Adam's story. And you read each one of their letters and you see each one of their perspectives of the same events and you get this like very expansive world with it, very complex and nuanced and it's just it's fascinating yeah and i think it's beautiful how they didn't all agree on everything but they sharpened each other's minds and they wouldn't have gotten to where they got if they hadn't had that back and forth they hadn't had the debates they hadn't gone through the experiences that they had absolutely well justin Wonderful having you on the show today. Where can people follow you on Twitter? What is your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's at Justin W. Stapley um, is my Twitter handle. Um, and then uh, our, our website for the newsletter is uh, freemannewsletter.com. And then if you want to look into our broader efforts at the foundation, that's thefreemanfoundation.com. And like I said at the beginning, it's it's plural Freeman, not the singular. So <laughs> we've we've tried to buy up the redirects, and we have most of them set up, but we're still working on all of that because <laughs> that is a a, a constant thing. <laughs> and if you're out there and you haven't subscribed to uh, to the website to the Substack, go subscribe, read, share, like, subscribe. You know all of those things. Uh, Justin, keep up the great work. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great episode. Uh, thank you so much to Justin Stapley for coming on. It was wonderful. Um, you know, he was talking about his introduction to history, and I just felt like it was the same for me. Learning from the ancients, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero for me, Seneca. Um, you know, I, I almost wish you had more time. I'm sure we'll have him back on the show to talk more about that, like, what are those foundations for the American Republic? Because as we mentioned, like we uh, we didn't just come out of nothing. You know, we we came from somewhere like in all things, you know, we came from our fathers and there's a great tradition that we need to talk more about. We all need to learn more about. And I remember, you know, it wasn't something I picked up in grade school or high school. It was actually something I just sort of, the seminar that a colleague of mine was putting on because he had finished his dissertation and he was trying to workshop this book that he was, he was thinking of doing. So I got to chance to sort of sit through this this program and um and learn so much and i think like we all could learn from from our founding that's you know american history is incredibly important because that's a story of us but sort of like you know what are our what's our lineage um so it's great to hear other people are discovering that as well so what did you think jeff i had a blast i could talk all day to him about you know government and political theory. I don't meet a lot of people that consider themselves political theorists. I have that on my, I think it's on my Substack. I wrote political theorists and I totally stole that from him. <laughs> like he had it on his and I saw that and I go, Hey, that's what I am. I theorize about politics. Boom. That's what I am. And he was a great guest, uh, lively conversation, thoughtful conversation, just, 
Yeah, we're going to have to have him back on the show. That was fantastic. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that's the best thing about being a political theorist is you don't need a tenure at a fancy university to, to think about what's wrong with our country and what we could fix. You could just be an average citizen, read a lot, understand the problems, and then just have ideas and debate them. That's the greatness of America right there. So, and uh, with that, we can... Uh, as everyone, we have these videos on YouTube if you're not listening. So if that's one thing you appreciate, feel free to subscribe, uh, like us, follow us on Substack, where politics and parenting.substack.com. And with that, peace and love. Peace and love. <laughs>